think that's one of the things that um, I wish I had done earlier in my career was actually start getting more involved in the community because it's you get back so much more than you give and um, it, I found it just it's, it's made me a better business leader getting out there and, and, and just being exposed to different perspectives and different ideas. Welcome to Beyond High Street. My name is Jenny Derrick and I'm the Dean of the Pharma School of Business here at Miami University. Today I am joined by Neil Restivo, who graduated with a Bachelor's in Business with an Accountancy concentration way back in 1982. So hi Neil and thank you for agreeing to do this podcast Beyond High Street. Hey Jenny, good to talk to you again. You didn't have to remind everyone what you had <laughs> I know, it makes me feel old too, just by the way, just in case you're wondering. So as our listeners know, during the podcast, we do weave through a range of topics. So our listeners can get to know you, more about your journey and your reflections along the way. So let me begin by perhaps one of the most important questions. Why did you choose Miami and the Pharma School of Business? My older sister had gone to Miami and um, had a really great experience there. And at, at that point, my parents decided that um, Miami was where I was going to go. And um, to be completely honest, there was another school that I was considering because I had some friends who were going there. But my parents, I think, did a good job of stealthily getting some of my guidance counselors and others to convince me. And um, I ended up in Miami. And, and obviously, from the, the day I got there, I really felt like I'd made the right decision and, and was happy they pushed me that way the school that will be nameless that you nearly went to. So we're glad that you came to us as well. So so you've got a really interesting career path and, and I'll let you speak of it to the listeners, but take us through the journey of what you did when you started your career and, and as you've woven through the different chapters of your career, obviously ending to the role that you currently have as Chief Executive Officer of OT Company. Um, you know, I, I always like to say that I've been really fortunate just in, in some of the opportunities that I've been given. And um, I was an accountancy major, so I started off in public accounting. I was actually with Arthur Anderson for um, about seven years out of the Cleveland office in the audit practice. And I had an opportunity to go work for one of my clients who had recently um, done a very large acquisition up in Canada. I was hired as the corporate controller. And Unfortunately, right after the acquisition happened, um, there was a downturn in the economy in, in Canada. And basically the company went into default under most of its debt covenants and was really having some significant financial issues. The decision was made at that time to fire the CFO and they decided to, to give me the opportunity to step into that role. So I was in my um, early thirties and you know, to, to be honest, probably didn't have any business getting into the role that I was in. But like I said, it was one of those opportunities that I was very fortunate to get. And um, I was, I think, smart enough to at least know what I didn't know. And I was very fortunate to have a number of advisors, whether they were bankers or lawyers or others, who really helped guide me um, as I made that transition. It was a public company at the time, so there was disclosure requirements and you know a lot of other things. But it was actually the best experience I've ever had. It was, it was hard. It was difficult and we spent about two years, but ultimately we were able to get the debt restructured and get the company on the right footing. But it, it's one of those things where, again, it was an opportunity that I never could have passed up. Wasn't quite sure I could do, but um, with a lot of good help and support made it through. You know, the rest of my career I, I spent, you know, I had a number of CFO roles with both public as well as private companies. And, and then I did a stint with a small manufacturing company where in addition to handling, handling finance, I was also the VP of operations. 
and it was something very different than, than what I'd ever done before. And I will say that directly running an operation probably wasn't what I enjoyed doing the most, but it gave me such great perspective in terms of what an operating company needed from a finance role to help them be successful. So I learned a lot doing it and, and it was a good experience. After that, I spent um, about five years actually doing some restructuring work with a firm that um, brought in resources when companies were going either through a transition or some kind of change. And again, I really enjoyed doing that work. And that's how I ended back at Odie. Um, one of the things that still amazes me is that when I started in public accounting, Odie was my very first client. And, and so to think that, you know, many, many years later that I've ended up, um, you know, back at Odie was just pretty remarkable. It, it shows you that you never burn bridges because you never know what's going to happen. But um, Odie had done a large acquisition. Their CFO had left and they needed someone in the interim to help them with some financings. And they had remembered me back from the Arthur Anderson days and asked me to do it. And um, 14 years later, you know, I, I'm, I'm still there. I was the CFO for nine years and then um, became the CEO about five years ago. Well, I think you've given some great advice already to our listeners. I mean, about not burning bridges. You, you, you know, it's always good advice to keep doors open because the world is small and you've come a full circle back to Oti. But I think it's really good advice. So tell us a bit about Oti. Sure. So Oti is a 106-year-old um, fourth-generation family-owned business. We are a manufacturer and distributor of plumbing products. And we've got operations across the U.S. as well as in Canada, Mexico, and China, uh, roughly about 1,600 um, associates around the world. Now, one of the things that I um, was really impressed by when, when you and I met for the first time, we talked a lot about your DE&I initiatives. And, the, and you know, we know that this is only get, getting posters and audio, but for those who are listening, you know, you do represent our majority student, if you will. And, and yet when we had a conversation, you talked just about how critically important it is for our students to understand diversity and to embrace difference and we had two-part conversation we talked about what are we doing to try and diversify our student population and in addition to that what are we doing to allow our students to understand the need to lead diverse teams talk to me about some of the work because you, you're doing some great work at OT and I was really enthralled and, and impressed by it well thank you um you know first off I guess I, I believe that leaders need to really be focusing on DNI. Um, it, it's the right thing to do. It creates opportunities as well as I think levels the playing field for marginalized groups as well as individuals, but it's also the right thing for the business. It, it makes businesses stronger. And um, you know what, to me, as with many, I think um, the murder of George Floyd was kind of a catalyst. And I, in, in just seeing what was happening and what was going on, I felt like I needed to do something, but I wasn't quite sure what that something should be. And it started off as listening. We actually went through and did a survey of all of our associates around the world. And we asked them three questions, you know, tell us what you're feeling right now. What things would you like to see going forward? And more specifically, what can Odie do to help? And, you know, going through all that information and, and getting the feedback was was really impactful because I thought people were actually pretty open and honest in terms of just their feedback. But kind of where I landed was that obviously the the issues of racism and justice are, are they're complex, they're ugly, they're they're really difficult to address, and no one person or organization is ever going to be able to fix them. 
I felt, however, though, as a leader of our organization, I could at least try to make meaningful change within ODI, as well as within some of the other organizations that we're working on. So we went through and actually just established um, a DEI journey. It's not a plan, it's not an initiative, it's, it's part of our culture, but we set out a roadmap in terms of what we wanted to accomplish. And um, a lot of what we're trying to do is not only increase the diversity within our organization, but more importantly, making sure that we've got an inclusive environment. It's not that it's easy, but you can get diverse talent in place, but unless you've got that kind of inclusive environment that really embraces that diversity and fully utilizes the different perspectives, um, you're never gonna be successful in keeping that. But like I said, to me, I, I, I believe it's the right thing to do, but it also makes us a stronger business. Having different voices at the table, different perspectives, different thoughts, that's how you come up with better ideas. You know, there's research out there that shows that companies that are more diverse are more profitable, they are more creative, they have more innovation, but they also have a, a more engaged workforce. You know, and today, obviously, many companies are faced with the same struggles we have at Odi, which is we can't get enough talent and, and labor into the business. And focusing on diversity actually has allowed us to start tapping pools of talent that we hadn't previously tapped. And to do that effectively, it's required us to change the way we recruit. It's required us to go through our job descriptions to make sure there's no bias in there. We've gone and actually have done training for anyone who does interviews to make sure to try to take some of the bias out of, out of that process. So we've done a lot along those lines and it really has helped us bring talent into the business. So, you know, there's, um, like I said, to me, it, it's a win-win kind of a situation. And um, again, something that I think, you know, all leaders really need to be trying to embrace within their business and, and really making a priority today. I love, I love what you're doing. And, and I love the idea of a, a, a roadmap, a journey. And I think that helps many of our listeners because it, I feel for myself, at least, that that we, we always learn so much about what D&I means and what it means to to, to be more inclusive. And I think it is a journey that we're all on to understand what more we can be doing. So I love the, the notion of journey. Um, you, you talked a bit about changing recruitment practices. Can you give a couple of other specific examples of, a, of programs or initiatives that you've implemented in the organization just to give some tangible pieces to it? You know, one of the things, um, again, I talked about inclusion before and having an inclusive environment. To me, in order to have a truly inclusive environment, you've got to have a culture of empathy. And, um, and so how do you go about developing empathy? Well, what we believed is that in order to, to do that, you really have to raise awareness in terms of the issues of racism and injustice. Um, you have to create an environment that's safe. It, it's not about trying to get everybody to, to think the same way or to you know, have a specific agenda, but it's getting people to I guess, be willing to listen to different perspectives, to understand that someone may come from a different background from where you came from, have a different point of view on things. And again, you don't have to agree with them, but what you have to do is be willing to listen to them and be willing to at least acknowledge that there's some differences there. So one of the most impactful things that we've been doing is we do monthly inclusion forums. And so you know, with COVID going on, we didn't have people in the office for a while. So we started doing these virtually back in 2020. And it's actually worked out well because it allows us to reach really um, all of our workforce across the U.S. as well as in Canada and Mexico. 
So there's a variety of topics. Um, we've talked about like the one this month was on Pride Month. So we had someone from the LGBTQ community come in. Um, we've talked with people from historically black, you know, colleges and universities just about, you know, what goes on there. We, we've talked about people with disability, you know, with um, a group that sponsors people with disabilities. Um, just we've talked about the construct of race. How does that come about? But the way the format is, the, these things go roughly about an hour and a half. We typically have a speaker. Sometimes we have internal panels. Sometimes we have panels with external. But the whole point of this really is to give our associates just different exposure to different perspectives on things. And um, it's really been impactful. And you know, to me, the thing that I've, I guess, felt the best about is when I hear from an associate that they went home and they talked to either their spouse or partner or family or, or someone about what we talked about. And, and it's almost like a trickle down effect, hopefully, that if we can start increasing awareness of these issues and building empathy within our organization, hopefully our associates are spreading them out to, to their communities. And when you look at other organizations that, that have, I mean, it sounds like you're doing some phenomenal things around DEI, but when you look at other organizations, do you feel that you're far ahead and, and innovative in what you're doing, or, or there are others that you're really watching closely? No, I, you know, we are, um, we're at the beginning of our journey. We're mm -hmm. in, in the second year of it. And, and I think, you know, we've made really good progress over the last couple of years. And I would say that our associates really have embraced this, but, you know, we have, we have a lot of opportunities still to continue doing. It's, um, th there's a number of other organizations that I'm involved with that, that are going along DEI journeys and, and some are further along than us and others aren't, but it, it's been nice because it allows us to work together and, um, you know, at least share best practices in terms of where we are. No, it's great. I love the example. So thank you for sharing. So earlier on, you talked about your sister had gone to Miami. Now, I believe you've got three sons who also went to Miami. Tell us about their, and they're very different in terms of the choices they made, but I'd love to hear more about them. Thank you. Sure. So first off, I didn't force any of them to go like um, my, my parents did. So my, my oldest son had decided on Miami from day one and was a farmer graduate. Um, my middle son started off at a different university and um, transferred to Miami after his first year and was an education major and graduated from there. And then my youngest son um, also started another university, transferred after his freshman year. And he was a psychology major with a minor in management. And we'll come back to them too, but I just love, I, and I love how different their pathways have been through Miami. And, and just before we move on from them, just give us a quick rundown about what each of the boys are doing. Sure. Um, my oldest son is um, a banker at, at Key Bank right now, and he is um, in their syndications group. My middle son is a, um, he's within HR at a, at a company called Lincoln Electric here in Cleveland. And then my youngest son, he had been doing some HR recruiting work, and he's actually getting ready to, to go back to school to, um, to pursue a master's degree. Oh, that's great. We'll bring them back in in a minute. So before we move back down to memory lane, more back to your time at Miami, there's one last question I wanted to ask you. In, in your bio, you talk about how important it is to give back to the community of which you're part. So talk a little bit about that philosophy, why it's important that, that people, especially business leaders, are willing to give back to the communities of which they're part. And tell us a little bit about the kinds of things that you do. Sure. Um, 
you know, the, the Odie family is extremely philanthropic and um, they're, they're huge supporters of, of the community, but they've done it in a very kind of quiet method. So, you know, we, we've never been out there doing it because we want people to, you know, say how great we are because we're, we're helping. So part of it was, was the culture, but, you know, honestly, it was something that I got involved in later in my career. And, and I felt like I've been very fortunate and I've been given a lot of opportunities and that I really had an obligation to start giving back. And um, once my kids had, you know, graduated from school and were done with their sports, I found that I had, you know, extra time and I was either going to be working 100% of the time or I decided that I was better served just trying to give back. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm involved in a number of different um, organizations. I think I sit on five or six not-for-profit boards, you know, right now. Um, and a lot of right now, the work that I'm doing there relates to DEI. Um, I'm actually three of the boards I'm on. I'm either the chair or co-chair of the DEI committee, and and so you know, for me, it, it it's been just great because it's it's been an opportunity again to, to help take some of the things that I've learned and push it out, and also an opportunity to learn more and different things that I could use and take back to to my organization. But you know, that's um, one of the things that I, I guess, and you haven't asked for the advice part yet, but just so I don't skip over it, I, I think that's one of the things that um, I wish I had done earlier in my career was actually start getting more involved in the community because it's you get back so much more than you give. And um, it, I found it just, it, it's made me a better business leader getting out there and, and, and just being exposed to different perspectives and different ideas. And, I, and, and some of the listeners might know that I used to run the Drucker School and Peter Drucker famously talked about a functioning society, but in particular what leaders do to and for the communities of which they're part and, and how important it is not just to lead effective organisations, but take care and nurture the community around us. So let's switch gears a little bit and we're going to go down a trip down memory lane. Now, Neil did tell me before the call, he reminded me that he graduated in 1982. <laughs> so not to be too hard on him. So we'll see how we go. <laughs> I think I think it's the short-term memory that goes, not the long-term memory. <laughs> That's right. So, so I'm going to run through a battery of questions and, 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 and about your time here. So when you look back at your time at Miami, who was your favorite professor? Do you remember? You know, the, the figure that I always associate with my time at Miami wasn't actually one of my professors, but it was Dr. Philip Shriver, who at the time for at least my first three years was the, the president of the university. And he was actually, uh, he also taught a Miami history course, but I, I had several opportunities just to interact with him. And I was always just struck by how genuine he was, how caring he was about the university as well as the students. And um, we called him Uncle Phil you know, back in, back in the day. And um, he's one of the, the people that I really remember in terms of having a good impact on, on me. I've heard great things about that history course he taught as well. Yes. So not professor that you least enjoy, but what subject did you least enjoy? I had to take geology of national parks. I don't know if they still offer that, but it seems to me, and, and no knocks on anyone who's a geology major, but I wasn't too interested in looking at pictures of rocks um, on, on screens for a semester. So I would probably say that one. <laughs> Fair enough. What co-curricular activities were you, you involved in? So I was involved, um, I was in a fraternity and um, 
and actually two of my three boys actually were in the same fraternity that I was in. So that was kind of fun. I did intramural sports, um, you know, soccer, softball, tennis. And then I was actually co-chair of Greek Week, Greek Week um, on my senior year. What fraternity were you in? Alpha Delta Phi. Very good. So what was your favorite time of the day for the class? Are you a morning person or not so much? Not so much. Late morning was probably the, the best time. Um, that way you could still get done early enough in the day, but, but didn't have to start too early. What was your favorite night of the week while at Miami? You know, the weekends were fun, but Thursday night always seemed to, to be kind of special. Um, you know, I, particularly when you're an upperclassman, I always tried to keep my load of classes a little bit lighter on Fridays. And so going out on Thursdays was always a lot of fun. Did you intern at all while you're at Miami? I'm sorry? Did you intern at all while you're at Miami? I did not. Yeah, not so much pressure. I, I think the pressure is a, a lot more intense now on our students to intern. Where did you live in your freshman year? Do you remember the, the dorm building? I, I lived in Anderson. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the room? <laughs> I remember the corridor. I was in mm -hmm. one south, um, but I, I don't remember the room. Have you, have you ever gone back to have a look at where you lived and, and your fraternity house as well? You, or I guess you did with your sons too. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been fortunate that over the last, you know, 10, 12 years, I've been down in Miami quite a bit. And, and actually, my youngest son graduated last May. And when we went down there, I actually made them walk around campus with me. And we took pictures in front of each of the, the places I had lived. That's great. I love it. So what is your favorite building on campus? Not uptown, but on campus. Campus. Um, well, back when I was at Miami, we called it the Res, but now it's, I think, the Shriver Center. But that was the, the student center back then. And I remember I, I typically did my studying there and um, hung out there. So I'd probably say that was my favorite. What about your favorite spot uptown? Um, so I don't know. Alan Larry's was a great place, but that burned down, um, I think, my sophomore year. After that, um, I'd probably say Mac and Joe's because I, I remember going to Mac and Joe's when I was at Miami and, and again, over the last 10 years or so, you know, we typically tried to get there every time we were in, in Oxford. It's a good favorite, isn't it? So what was your most memorable personal experience while you were at Miami? Um, so and I'll connect this one to, to my kids. Um, I remember distinctly after my last final, I went through and, and I went to campus and, and went to the seal and I jumped on it. You know, I'd been really good for four years of trying to, you know, keep with them um, tradition and, and not walk over it. And um, after each one of my kids graduated after, you know, commencement, we always walked to um, the seal and, and we jumped on it together and took pictures. So it, it was good. I love that. When you look back at your time at Miami, what would you do differently? Is there anything you would have done differently? Um, you know, maybe it gets back to the community service that I talked about. I, I, within my fraternity, I know we did some community service projects, but I think I wish I would have gotten maybe more involved in, in that. Is there a, a class that you wish you'd taken? I'm, I'm very interested in history and um, I read a lot of history. And, and so I had some opportunities to take history classes, but I wish I would have had an opportunity to do more of that. 
Right, we're switching gears to the advice part. Now, as our listeners know, you've got three wonderful sons. Each of them had a very different pathway through here. Some farmer, some not farmer. So I'm going to ask you to give two lots of advice and, and then I'm going to expand. So just bear with me. So advice number one is for incoming students. And I'll come back to that. And advice number two is for students early in their career, recent graduates. But as you think about advice number one, for incoming freshmen, knowing how different the pathway was for your boys, you know, what advice would you give an incoming student to the farmer school or, or Miami at large? Because I think your advice can span both. I think what I would tell them is to make sure you take advantage of the experience. Academics are, are obviously critical, but I think one of the things about going to college also is it helps you learn who you are and, and what kind of person you wanna be. And, and to fully do that, you've got to experience everything. So my advice is, is try different things, meet people and, and try to hang out with people who have different experiences or different backgrounds from where you are. Try something different that makes you uncomfortable, really go through and do the experience. Miami is a special place, you know, I, I think most of us who've gone there acknowledge that and um, it goes by really quickly. And, and so I would just say, take full advantage of all the time there. So of, of your three sons, one of them seemed to come and knowing what he wants to do. I don't know whether he changed majors during the process, but so he was kind of on a path and stayed on the path. But the other two transferred in from other colleges, changed majors along the way. And I know that for younger students who are listening, you know, the, the notion that you have to get it right from the beginning can be quite daunting. So can you speak a little bit about that, that whole experience, given how much change your sons went through to get to where they are? And, you know, my, my oldest knew what he wanted to do from, from day one and pursued it. Um, the other two, you know, I, I think it's pretty rare for, um, a, a, you know, a 17 or 18 year old to, to enter college and, and have to commit to what they want to do for the rest of their lives. It, it gets back down to being open to different experiences. And um, I, I think you just have to always know that any decision you make is never final. You could always make changes along the way. And, and I was actually very proud of both of them for the fact that, you know, they realized that the first choice they made probably wasn't the best one. And, and they were willing to, to go through and, and, and change course and do what they needed to do. And it's such important advice. There's so much pressure on our students today to try and get it right and, and, and to keep everything going. But I think an expression I once heard was the trying 20s that people in their 20s do try a lot of things out and, and some more than others. But I think that's just part of the process. What about for the other advice for the other group that I mentioned early in career? So you just started your job and, and, and take that how you will. But what, what advice would you give someone? You know, today, um, the, the pace of change within, the, and I'm talking about business now in, in particular, but the, the pace of change has just accelerated so much that I think what companies are looking for really are employees who are open to change, who, who embrace change, who are comfortable with change. And, and that's difficult for, for many. And it, it, it requires really, you know, some people getting out of their comfort zone, like I said, but I think that's a skill that, that's really important today. Um, openness to change, being flexible. You know, the, the second thing I'd say is being empathetic. As, as we talked about before, um, I, I believe in the world today that you really do have to be willing to listen, that, that you've got to, again, you don't have to agree, 
but you have to be at least willing to listen to someone else. I just finished reading a, a book by James Patterson, his, his autobiography. And, you know, I don't know if he's any expert on this, but he said something that struck me, which is he said, the problem in the world today is that most people think they're right and everyone else is stupid. And, um, you know, and I think that's encapsulated a little bit of the issues we have. And if there was more empathy around and, and would help. Um, the, the third thing is to take advantage of every situation or opportunity you're given and recognize you could learn from it. What we've seen in, in some of our younger employees is they're, they're very anxious to do something and move on to something else. And I feel that at times they haven't taken full advantage of and learned everything they could from the first role they were in. And, and so it's, it's making sure that you learn, you recognize you can learn from anything you're doing. You may not like it, but you can learn from it. And, and so don't rush to, to switch too quickly. In fact, on that point, I was talking to a, a person we're in a mentor-mentee relationship. And we were just talking about the the cadence of jobs, and and you know I think it's really a fair comment that when you take on a new role, you're in three parts. Number one, you learn the role. Number two, you do the role. Number three, you improve upon the role. And so, to your point, if you're coming in as a new person and you're learning the role, you're not really adding so much value to the role until you've been in it a little while. And and so, when you see this turnover. I think that really speaks to what you're saying that we're not you know to, you need to stay in a role for a little while to really make an impact and 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 demonstrate value and get the full experience and benefit of that role exactly exactly well I have so enjoyed this interview Neil so as I close I want to thank you for your gift of time and to allow me to record this podcast beyond high street one of the defining characteristics of pharma school of business is just how engaged our alumni are and how willing they are to continue to find ways to support the school its students our faculty our staff and other alumni so thank you Neil and go well as you continue in your journey beyond on High Street. Thank you.